Hi, this is Claudia Gray, and you're listening to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Here. This is Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am with my good friend, she is more progressive than Sabe and Padme hiding things from Captain Panaka. It's Lindsay. <laughs> We're just getting right into it, aren't we? <laughs> you know, I've got Phantom Menace on my screen right now. i got Phantom Menace on my brain. We are talking Queen's Peril. I'm very, very excited. And we, we couldn't talk about a Queen's book, a uh, E.K. Johnston specialty, without having our other good friend. He is ready i I got to do this really well because he doesn't come on this show that much he is more badass than cara dune and qui-gon jinn teaming up together it's drew oh well that's equally concerning and uh (laughs) (laughs) you know i uh I really want to make people think. Everything in the world, so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, maybe I should have thrown a little bit of uh, Jar Jar in there, Ewoks or something to kind of okay lighten it up a little. We don't have to sink that low, do we? (laughs) You know, I read a book. You guys should be proud of me. And I read a book. I didn't even have to listen to this one. I, for one, am incredibly proud proud of you. You even got to start the book before Brandon or I did. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know this, but books are available online, and you can just, like, download the thing and read it from your device. You don't have to wait for the paper version anymore. In these uh, days and times, getting paper copies of anything is a bit challenging. (laughs) I I think I should have called Drew the more progressive one, actually, because he definitely was like, stinking books, I don't need no paper. I live in North Carolina. Please don't call me that progressive. I may not make it out alive. (laughs) (laughs) The the P word is a four-letter word down there. Yes, we got to be really careful. (laughs) You you forget that I live in Texas, but... They just told, like, the NASCAR fans that they can't bring Confederate flags to the races anymore, and I'm really afraid of walking outside the door today. And now the riot starts. Yeah, yeah, now the riot starts. (laughs) Honestly, though... Um, on that note, I mean, it, it, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up everything that's that's going on right now because um, we, we haven't recorded anything since all of this uh, stuff started. And we just wanted to, to say that we stand with Black Lives Matter and uh, the people who are, are honestly just searching for basic human rights, um, which is crazy to think about uh, in, in the day and age in which we live and... Uh, we appreciate that you are uh, listening to us, and hopefully we can do what Star Wars has done for us and bring some perspective to things and, and help us all understand this world a little bit better and understand each other a little bit better. Absolutely. Very well said. So we are talking about Queen's Peril, and Drew, you you were very excited for this book because it is the prequel to your favorite canon book, Queen Shadow. So I have this two questions. 
Number one, is Queen Shadow still your favorite canon book? And number two, do you feel like Queen's Peril lived up to that bar that you set? Hmm. Uh, okay. Yes, Queen's Shadow is still my favorite out of the, the new canon series. I still think it's probably the most important book. Um, I think it, Shadow was so different and so uh, interesting to, to, to kind of see how it's put together and, and what it shows us about the galaxy that I think that's still probably uh, number one for me. This was not bad. Queen's Peril is not bad. It is not quite as exciting, I think, as that one. Um, I still think it, it, it follows not necessarily the same formula, but I, I would consider it in kind of the same description as it's not exactly like there's, you know, establishment of characters, uh, triggering plot, sequence, 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 uh, climax, denouement. It's not kind of that stereotypical Star Wars formula, just like Queen's Shadow was not. This neither is Queen's Peril. Uh, it does not have in a a if we, are we allowed to just kind of talk about anything spoilery or yeah or yeah we are. We'll for, I've never we'll actually listened to this show, so I don't know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> not true. It's not true. I listened to like one a long time ago. Um. <laughs> oh man, do I love you? <laughs> so the truth hurts sometimes well you know all right lizzo calm down wow i don't know what that means either um there's no like i imagine the back of the book of this was very hard to kind of put together because there's no plot by which you can describe you know padme encounters a new enemy and has to overcome her insecurities in order to triumph and lead her people to freedom it, 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 it it's not so clean cut as that it's much more about let's spend some time with these characters. Let's get them to know each other. Let's get you to know them. But then the book takes a hard right turn at like the 60% mark or so. And suddenly you find yourselves in the middle of the Phantom Menace. To which I was like, the heck are we doing here? Um, I did not particularly enjoy that change. And here's why. I'm pretty familiar with the Phantom Menace. Uh, I've, I've, it is certainly the prequel that I have watched the most. It might even be the Star Wars movie I have watched the most times um, because of how many times I would watch it on a weekly basis when it first came out on home video 137 years ago. So I know what's happening in The Phantom Menace pretty good. Now, what I do appreciate is the book does a good job, I think, of explaining what's happening off screen or what happens after the camera cuts away. So, for example, there's the sequence where... Uh, Obi-Wan is on the Queen's ship while they're on Tatooine and he receives the transmission about from C.O. Bibble. He says, the death toll is catastrophic. You must contact me. He says, it's a trick. Send no reply. And he walks out of the room. Well, we understand now because of what happens in Queen's Peril, we understand the context behind that call, why those words were chosen, uh, and the reaction of the handmaidens who are on the ship who heard the message after Obi-Wan leaves the room. Now, after Obi-Wan leaves the room in the film, he calls Qui-Gon Jinn, but evidently there's this other conversation that takes place in the other room where the girls try and and, uh, keep from laughing in Obi-Wan's face because they're like, we already know that. We're three steps ahead of you. Those kind of things are interesting, but they lose their charm really, really quick. Um, For example, we are given one line that says, in kind of a a breakaway moment, just kind of a a sideline moment that says, Anakin Skywalker really likes flying 
which we're, we understand what's going on. We're t- it's talking about his, you know, having commandeered the N1 starfighter, and he's up in the skies above Naboo fighting off the droids. And like, f- you know, 15, 20, 30 pages later, it says Anakin Skywalker really, really in italics likes flying. It's like, okay, I get what you're doing. We know the movie's progressing. Can you please tell me something new and interesting that's going on? And I think that, start, that novelty wears off very quickly. Um, I, I, I think it's neat that they bring in things like there's a, a section where we get to see Darth Maul prowling around the Naboo temple during the daytime. And it's a little bit strange because imagining Darth Maul walking through a temple in the daytime seems really strange. He walks through like the energy sections and says, oh, this is going to be a cool place to like finish the fight. He goes to like where the, the red gates are and says, this is where I can separate them and take them on one at a time. He goes to where the giant pit is and it says for like a fleeting moment, considers where the pit ends up. And we're like, okay, yes, I know where the pit ends up because I know where he ends up in like three years of the Clone Wars show or something like that. But do we really need to spend time imagining that Darth Maul pretended to think about the pit? I think those kind of things started to really wear down the quality of this, of of Queen's Peril overall. Um, And the fact that the book almost ends uh, just before the epilogue, the the text proper ends as the film ends. And you're kind of running along this ride and it just peters out and just stops. It's, It's like the ride just runs out of gas and comes to an end rather than an actual climax of the story. By the time the story itself ends, nothing new has actually happened. We don't really have any new experiences or adventures that the characters have gone on, because we know exactly what happened. We saw it on the screen back in 99. And then well, the epilogue wraps it up, and that's, that's something we'll probably talk about later. Yeah, we'll, kinda, we'll, we'll get to the epilogue. Yeah. So I that's, think it's, it's not bad. I, I enjoyed this one. Um, I think it ties in with Shadow oh, very, very well, though I think Queen Shadow does the same trick a whole lot better. See, I say that that timeline of it being with the Phantom Menace, I I liked and I disliked it for for various reasons. Um, part of it is just like you said, it takes a hard right. I was reading the book as if it happened like a, a much further before the Phantom Menace than apparently like a couple months before the Phantom Menace uh, into actually being in the Phantom Menace. And a side story like that is challenging to pull off. Because especially when you have like these main characters that are present, like Padme and throwing Anakin in there and Maul and Qui-Gon, like you have the main people of episode one in this book. And you're trying to tell us their story while simultaneously telling us a side story. Whereas in Lost Stars, you get, okay, here the main characters are around. We get a mention of Leia. We get an interaction with Vader, but they're not part of the plot. The, The characters that are the focus point of the story are the, they're the ones that move the plot along. But at the same time, I had a really interesting experience with with this book because we were at uh, my in-laws and I finished reading the book and I went downstairs uh, to get something to eat and my father-in-law put on The Phantom Menace. And so I actually sat and watched (laughs) The Phantom Menace immediately after finishing this book. And I do have to say, at least for the first viewing, it was really cool to um, look at it through this lens, to look at moments like when Padme is watching the uh, message from C.O. Bibble and 
okay, now that I know she see, she knows the code word in there, instead of thinking about, you know, oh, I'm so sad for my people, it changes it to more of a hopeful uh, sadness, you know, where I know that people are, they're, they're Sabe and, and uh, not Sabe, Sache and Yane are there, but at the same time, I don't know what's going to become of them, you know, that uncertainty. Um, I liked even details that it added, like the relationship between the Naboo and the Gungans, uh, where it's not just that they don't like each other, it's that they literally uh, have barely even met each other. It, it reminded me a lot of um, like the Civil War Reconstruction era, where there were a lot of uh, white people who had never seen a black person before. And all of a sudden, you know, they see this person who has a different culture, but shares the same planet and how do we adjust to that and what does that mean kind of thing so there are uh there are moments like that that i really really like but i do agree that it turned so drastically into uh the phantom menace that it was a little unsettling um and hard to to come to terms with at the end because it felt like we were reading a different book and it would so this should surprise Sorry, I, I just want to hop nope, in because nope. this should surprise absolutely no one that we are about to cover the entire spectrum of views on this show between Drew not liking it, Brandon being somewhere in oh, the middle. No, I have to say I liked it. I liked it because if you guys remember, my big criticism with Queen Shadow was that it had, we'll say that 60-40 split, where during Queen Shadow, I vividly remember sitting in my chair being, you know, about 60% of the way through and thinking, I really like this book. I have no idea what the plot is, though. I mean, I I really, really did. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I looked down and I was like, how am I already on page like 130? And I, I don't know what the plot is. I'm enjoying it. I like these characters. I like the premise. But that's it. it that's so, <laughs> but spend time and, with these people, and that works once. I think it's okay for Queen Shadow to be isolated like that. But they very often in Queen Shadow referenced a lot of what happens in this book. So to be able to yeah. go and add more insight while still being able to tie it into the larger galaxy and the Skywalker saga as we know it. I think that works really well. That's something you have to do. You can't necessarily have all these little isolated, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of anecdotes. There we go. You can't have all these little anecdotes about Padme and her friends and it not be really tied into something larger. So to be able to now say, here are the relationships that they have with each other. Here's how it was formed. And here's what it means to the larger story. I think that's pretty important. I think what it got me thinking about was how much I would rather have had the Phantom Menace be more focused on, on Padme and her team. Like, I feel like it was trying to apply a whole lot more focus and provide a lot more foundation for somebody to watch The Phantom Menace and understand what's going on. But I really just wish the film had done that itself. Like, I've, I felt like it pointed out how much the film does not have a clear focus on these individual characters, uh, separate and apart from one another, and the way in which they come together. Like, 
in the book in, in Queen's Peril, there's a moment towards the beginning where they start introducing characters who don't actually have anything to do with the team. Like you have a chapter that talks a little bit about uh, Darth Sidious reviewing tax law in a bar in Coruscant somewhere in, in the underground. There's a moment where uh, Obi-Wan is studying the same kind of thing in the Jedi library. And you're like, the heck are we doing with these characters? Because now the book itself is introducing names and, and, and narratives that have nothing and do not interact with our main characters at all. Like the focus of Queen's Peril is how Padme's crew comes together, how they learn to work as a team, and how that team is employed. And we learn how it's employed through the ending of the book, which does run parallel to The Phantom Menace. But again, we already know how the team runs together. We've already seen The Phantom Menace. We know what happens in the end. So I'm not quite sure why we have to spend another couple chapters going over the same material. Now, the first two sections, which talk about how the gang gets, blah, 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 how the gang all gets together, and how they have to work through their differences and learn to operate as a team is fascinating to, to enjoy. And it was great to really read through how these kids, they're really kids, get together and kind of form this team that kind of outsmarts the cranky old you know, supervisor, the old dad who's just kind of watching them through the windows, making sure they're not calling boys late at night and stuff. And they run off to mom and mom's like, girls will be girls. I mean, that kind of stuff was kind of fun. Well, I think um, something that I guess I don't want to say it's an issue, but it's kind of a trap that, that I think E.K. Johnson kind of made for herself is you have so much in Queen's Shadow about Sache's injuries that she got from the Battle of Naboo. Yes. And you want to tell mm -hmm. that story, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you are framing the book as focusing on Padme, at least in... in the, the presentation of the book. You have her on the cover. You have, you know, Amidala makes you think about, about Padme. Like, she's supposed to be the focal character. That's how it was set up. I feel like that what the book did more effectively this time than Queen Shadow is separating the handmaidens and making them all more compelling individually. So I think if we get to the end and you want to cover all of the Phantom Menace, that's fine, but trust your audience to know what's happening in the movie without having to bring it up so much. That's I think kind she of a good created... Because... Uh, she was trying to ground us in a story that we're already grounded in. Because if you're, you're already... There's like two things going on. You're, you're talking about Darsidious, you're talking about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, you're talking about Maul without actually saying what happens with them in the movie. So you're mm -hmm. trusting your audience to get those references in those little, I guess, interlude kind of sections. You're trusting your audience to know what's happening in The Phantom Menace or know what's coming in The Phantom Menace. And then you get to the end part and you feel the need to tell us exactly what's happening in The Phantom Menace while also telling us this other story, which I don't feel like was necessary. I would have preferred, and and when I say this, like we're, we're critiquing here, I'm a huge fan of the book. I thought it was written very well. I thought the way that the story was presented was really intriguing, but I would have much rather had that second or uh, third act of the book be focused on just the handmaidens. Don't even make, don't even spend time with Padme. Don't even. Um, Whoa. Yeah, I, I think so. Whoa. Because. Uh, well, that, Bold claim. 
I would have been Padme more... character is overrated. <laughs> oh, hey, 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 don't put those words in my mouth. Now I love Padme. Um, but I do think it would have been a lot more interesting or at least more um, compelling as an overall story with a plot to spend that time with Sache and Yane uh, rather than jumping back and forth or even hmm, focusing yeah. more in on Sabe. Like, I just don't feel like we really needed that much of Padme because we get Padme in the Phantom Menace. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I was thinking that about the, the torture sequence that Sasha has to endure, where we had in, been introduced to that, the, the, the effects of that in Queen's Shadow. So we had kind of come pre-programmed to understand, oh, she's going to get left behind in the camp. She's going to go through this terrible, you know, ordeal and she's going to come out the other side stronger and when uh, reading through those sections i kind of felt like we're straddling a line and i feel like either going left or right would have been better than than kind of riding down the middle i would have either preferred that they mention it briefly like they took her away and they brought her back and she's all bruised and beaten up and scarred and, and she can't stand up straight or whatever or let us sit in the room, and I, this is going to sound really sadistic, and I apologize. It's not my intention to like beat up on like 14-year-old girls. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not advocating for that. Listen, but, if you have to specify it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a caveat. to hear. But here's <laughs> Sit your audience in the room when it happens, and uh, let your audience feel the same thing. Because if you want us to understand what she's gone through, don't tell us she's just gone through an ordeal. Put the audience through the ordeal. And no, I 100% agree with you on that. Because there's a couple 100% times, agree. Well, I, I'm glad because there's a couple times in, in these books where they'll do that. They'll put you in these uncomfortable situations and they'll let it, let it kind of marinate. And those are really good. Like when, when I, I know this is, you know, t take a drink because I'm going to tell you when a scene breathes. When you let the scene breathe, someone just took a drink. I don't believe it. I did. <laughs> It's my iced coffee. It was too perfect not How to. How unprofessional. <laughs> so when you let the scene breathe, your audience feels what your character feels. When you do not let it breathe, all we can do is believe that the character felt something. And then we just have to accept that and move on. But if we get to sit there and really feel it, and we kind of felt like we've gone through a torturous sequence, we can then understand what that character does with that information later. Now, the downside in this book is I don't know that she does a whole lot with it later. That's kind of the problem here. So it might have been better to maybe not water it down from where it was in the story, but a, a, an approach that didn't make us want to look behind the curtain and watch what's going on. Now, maybe that's just, again, my sicko nasty brain who wants no to i don't think it room. is like i'm really happy that you also think that because number one i mean i'm always a big fan of show don't tell so if we can <laughs> yes that's <laughs> that's what i'm here for <laughs> but but sachet especially one like you said is referenced so often in queen shadow that it was so important not only for her but but for Padme, you know, this is a big, big character development, not just for her, but for Padme. And we can assume for the other handmaidens that it would have been important to see. But also, in my opinion, I'm, I don't know if you guys are going to agree with this, but I think Sache was the most under, not underutilized, but underdeveloped character where she really is kind of treated as that 
immature little kid for most of this. And I understand that it's because she's struggling with these other feelings that she has towards Yane. She doesn't want to own up to these feelings yet. She doesn't feel mature. She doesn't feel ready. We obviously see her go through some physical changes in the book. But when all is said and done, she doesn't really seem to take too much agency at this point yet. I think her big scene is when she comes back and she says, hey, I have to go back out there. I have to go back out in the camps. That part would have been so much more powerful, though, if we could say she is really risking something. This isn't just a matter of she's afraid to go get a couple more scrapes and bruises, but she really underwent this psychological and this physical trauma. So her saying, I'm going to go back out there, really, really means something to us. And I don't think we really got that. Well, I think that that part of the reason for that is that you set up Sache and Yane to be these opposing forces, right? Um, they don't like each other, but it, we don't know why. There's there's never any reason, never any background given. So instead of it being something that you're invested in seeing how they're going to overcome it, it feels like a trope. It feels like you can't put five girls together without drama happening. You know, and oh, and but see, they they established it in Queen Shadow that the two of them were together. Yeah, I, I read it as that one of them, and I can't remember which one was which, was struggling with how to understand what she was feeling, and that was why she kept her distance. See, I didn't Same. get that at all. I did not get that at all. So that interesting. That made <laughs> that made it a little. You know, it, it made their their relationship a little less compelling to me, which in turn makes just their character development. I'll have to go back. I'm rereading Queen Shadow right now, so maybe I'll I'll pick up some some more stuff that will help me add a little context to that, you know what I mean? But um, now that we're kind of on the topic, identity, sexuality, all of that stuff is really um, very present in this book and how much of it is your own, how much of it is the circumstances that you're a part of, how much of it is created by the people that we surround ourselves with. Um, I think that that there's a lot in here that's really interesting um, as far as that we have, uh, uh, you know, Yane and Sache. We have uh, some stuff we'll get to later with Padme and Sabe. But even little things uh, that could easily be glanced over really make you think about that like when um sabe was talking about the the paint uh the face paint itching you know um or how the the face paint and the clothings actually creates amidala not who is behind the mask kind of thing so just in Mm -hmm. terms of the i guess development of us as as people and our identity how how do you feel Lindsay, that this spoke to that part of ourselves? Cool, big question. But I mean, that's the big theme that I think E.K. Johnston consistently gets to. You know, this is her third entry into the Star Wars universe. And that's the biggest thing underlying all three of her books is what exactly does make up what a person is? Is it the way they were brought up? Is it the ideals that they currently stand for? Is it their relationship with other people? 
And this, I think, does a great job of showing that exact blend. You know, when we see Padme, it's, I think, really telling that before we get to see her in this, as Padme or as Amidala, think about who we're introduced to first. We have Sabe, we have Panaka, we even have Palpatine, and then we have her parents. So before we can understand who Padme is and who Amidala is going to be, we need to understand all these tiny little facets of what that person is. And then, of course, once we have that and we have those strong foundations, that's when we can start to build up more and more to say, what about the wardrobe? What about the makeup? What about the face paint? Even then, we can build on the more important aspect of what about the ideals? Okay. Yeah. So that's well, interesting because I, you're describing it, Lindsay, as the text is giving an opportunity for the characters as well as the reader to create the individuals as you go along. Whereas I was kind of reading it as the text is... Uh, is is challenging each of the characters with the different ways in which they're obfuscated or covered up or they are actually changed the way that they look. Like there's so much about confusion of identity and purposeful misdirection here. Um, and the, it catches the characters up. Like there's the scene that I think encapsulates it best is when the, uh, when Padme's in her handmaiden outfit and Sabe's taken the role of the queen for actual decision-making purposes for the first time. So she's in the room where it's happening and Padme is kind of uh, accosted is not the right word, but kind of like uh, cornered by Harley. Harley's this character who's kind of introduced, I think, for the first mm -hmm. time here. And Harley and Sabe get along and have their own little encounter, and so the two of them are developing a relationship. But when Harley encounters Padme in the hallway, she thinks it's Sabe. And Padme doesn't have the, the wherewithal to actually admit out loud, and we understand why, that it's not her that she allows herself to be confused for Sabe and then kind of detonates their their relationship and kind of uh, inadvertently causes some real confusion and problems between these two other people because she's not willing to step up and say, this is who I am, this is what we're doing, because she can't. She can't risk the security, she can't risk the game that they've worked on so hard and so long to kind of put together that now it's causing some real-world consequences that they had not foreseen. So there's this question of covering up identities and it, allowing who you are to kind of shine through, where you know Sabe had let her guard down, and that's what developed their relationship with Harley. But now Harley's kind of doing what she thinks is natural in, in that relationship, but Padme is the one who is on the receiving end, and it, it causes some real problems. Well, and it, I mean, but that's a, that's a very realistic thing, right? Like, you... You hear a lot somebody who is gay but has not come out yet getting like a gay guy getting in a relationship with a girl, you know, um, or or whatever, trying to come to tr trying to figure out how to present sure. who they are in the in the most uh, authentic way possible. Right. Uh, and so instead of being what they are supposed to be or who they are supposed to be, I should say, they are being what people expect them to be. And right, I mean, the right, context right, right. is a little different, obviously, because here you're talking about, you know, personal identity versus, you know, global security. But I think it speaks to that in terms of, you know, until we start to admit how we feel about ourselves, nobody else can fully understand us because it's not until Sabe explains 
where she's at with the Harley situation uh, and that relationship, it's not till she admits that and she talks that out with Padme that Padme is really fully able to understand her relationship with Sabe. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I I think that's important. So I'm going to actually take this from a point of view that I always, always have. I will have for my entire life. I have for my entire life. There's no way I can escape this. I have a twin sister, right? Every single thing that I have ever done has been tied to the fact that I have a twin sister. And there have been so many times, you know, up through high school where teachers would get us confused. Our friends' parents would get us confused. And sometimes when we were really young, even our friends would get us confused. And it's it's interesting. It's very tricky because there have been times where it was more beneficial for me to kind of play the part of Cindy for a few minutes instead of correcting that person and vice versa. So I feel like I'm actually very used to and I can slip in and out of myself and then sometimes take on, you know, the role of Cindy. And what's interesting is, you know, Brandon, you also talked about a person being gay and having to hide it. Cindy didn't come out of the closet until we were in our 20s. So understanding like all these little tiny nuances and the fact that when you are representing yourself, you are always going to be representing something else, whether it is your parents, your spouse, your partner, the way you carry yourself and the way you act is always going to reflect on something larger than yourself. And I think Padme and Sabe were trying to figure this out through the guise of Amidala. Yeah, I can. I mean, I definitely think that's you know something that's going on there because we do, we exist in in relationship with other people, right? Like, and Star Wars is about that. You can't talk about Anakin without talking about Padme. You can't talk right. about Luke without talking about Vader, right? You can't talk about even a character that would seem so se- seem separated from everybody else, like Qui Gon. You know, you can't talk about Qui-Gon without talking about the Jedi and where the Jedi are going wrong. So that conversation of like how our identity is, it's not as individual as we would like to think that it is, you know? Um, and we we have our, our real self that we only get to fully understand ourselves when we open up to other people, but we also have this, the, the masks that we put on for, for different reasons you know you have your your mask at work you have your mask with your family you know like that's just that's a very real thing that happens and here you have the mask of the queen which i don't know about you guys but i did not realize that the queen included being the queen included so much anonymity um i don't think that was ever really brought up before where people don't even know the real identity of the queen. I found that pretty interesting in terms of like how it speaks to the selflessness of Naboo society and how they they serve for the sake of serving um, and for the uh, not for the glory. Whereas it amplifies the ego of Palpatine, who does want the glory and is willing to sacrifice these good people to be able to get that power uh, and glory. So, did you guys? Am, am I? 
off here? Is there something <laughs> I'm missing of where where we knew this before? Um, or I or, think it was in some guidebook or like one of those visual dictionary type things before, but this okay. is the first time that we get into someone's headspace while they're adopting that. And what I really like is that we see it from the beginning and we see it start to grow. It's not like we just hopped into Padme is Amidala. She's had two years to perfect this double life. I really like that we get to see her struggle with this a little bit. And they make reference of the previous queen didn't really honor this. And maybe that's part of why she wasn't successful. But I thought it was just really interesting that we get to understand the conflict there and that even for the most noble person doing this, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to put yourself aside for your pride or just your everyday life. How do you completely disassociate with yourself and take up this other person? And, my, and, can, my campaign manager hat went on, and I was like, I don't know how you run an election sequence when you don't actually know who's running for office. Yeah, it's challenging. The candidates don't have real names. They can't confront one another. There's no like, you know, a, a option to challenge one another on positions and platforms and whatnot. And I was like, for me too, it's like I want to know like their past voting record for everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And, then, and then then I started thinking like, well. There, a queen's rule is two years. So there's, if you think about two years per term, you probably start running for re-election halfway through. So you got one year, which means if Padme was 14 when she was elected, she was 13 years old when she was running for office. Now, I, I don't know how comfortable people would be electing a 13-year-old of whom they don't know. <laughs> anything about them it seems really strange it seems like this whole system is fraught for uh, some uh, some fraud and some uh, very easily manipulated individuals who could take advantage of this kind of thing so i went down a, a strange rabbit hole of nabu politics and uh, election history and it's 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 kind of weird it's not great well not i, I great. think co bibble thank he, god for co bibble. Oh, yeah which also just <laughs> side note holding nabu together <laughs> yeah uh and the fact that he outranks the queen i found that pretty interesting also uh even though he never acts like he outranks the queen but i think I'm not sure what the queen actually does yeah well and and like, here's what is the thing the role? what is the purpose of it? how do you elect a monarch I'm not really sure how that works well i mean I think the thing is, it's one of those things in Star Wars where maybe it's better if you don't ask how it works, right? Yeah, don't, and, don't stare too long at it. Yeah, and just look at the meaning because I think the point that's being made uh, in the little bit that we get of the Naboo politics is the selflessness of serving, right? Um, whereas our current political era situation mm. has become more of a sporting event. Right. Like Hmm. there's a lot of politics that's more sporting event than it is actually doing what's right for the people that I mean, that's the the, you know, what goes on with the 24 hour news cycle. And we had great presidents before who maybe we didn't know all the uh, skeletons that were in their closet, but they were somebody we could look to for guidance. And, uh, you know, we could look to that mask that they put on as president. And so I think that's where we're getting what we're getting here is the the selflessness of serving. It's not about it's not even about winning the election in terms of like 
winning, like I beat the other person. It's winning the election should mean that the Naboo people will be better two years from now than they were two years ago. Um, and that's kind of the meaning that, that I pulled out of it there. I'm trying to find the exact quote because I think that the way you put it, the selflessness of serving is so important, not on any kind of grand scale, not on, you know, Nebu was the picture perfect idealistic society. I mean, yes, we can get into that. I just don't think it's E.K. Johnston's point. I think her point is more about the individuals, right? And her point really is, here's everything Padme was trying to do, and here's how that reflected in what was actually going on in her personal life, right? So mm-hmm. when you say the yeah. selflessness of serving, the the part that I'm brought back to for some reason is, I think it was after uh, they were leaving Tatooine, and Padme is talking to Sabe, and she's kind of, you know, Sabe's like, I would die for you. You know, I, I understand the consequences. Mm, yep. I understand what we're about to do. I would die for you. And Padme has to admit, I can't do the same for you. And it's that really nice dichotomy where Padme wants to be this selfless leader, and she wants that selflessness of serving, but she can't do it because she is still the leader. So even though she in her personal life wants to be selfless to these five girls she has this relationship with, she can never be truly selfless in her own personal life. Yeah, it's demonstrating that level of service on different levels. Uh, you know, the, on the in an individual, on a small corporate level, but then also on a global scale. And she can only focus on the higher level scales, which is not bad because if you had a whole team full of people who are all willing to die for each other individually, but nobody thinking about the planet, then you've got a really terrible system of governing. So it, it kind of seeks to demonstrate how that's that level of self sacrifice is needed at all levels on both the one-to-one relationships, the one-to-five, and, and then all the way up to the interplanetary conflicts. I mean, that's your thesis statement, basically. <laughs> no, it's true, though. It's, it's just it a is. really, I think, a very well-done book overall. Like, Queen's... This is probably my biggest gripe with the book is the name's Queen the name Queen's Peril because it's just too similar to Queen's Shadow and I know like right now right now it's fresh on my mind that's fine but I know a year two years later <laughs> I'm never going yeah, to be able to keep which. these straight yeah, there's well, no way what do you but, think is where what is the value in naming this Queen's Peril like I think we understood Queen's Shadow because it was designed to give us a peek literally behind the curtains and understand what's going on and what it takes to make the persona of the Queen run and it really the characters run more in the shadows than it is in the lights that's kind of what Queen Shadow speaks about and whatnot but what do you think about Queen's Peril what do you what do you think is the impact of naming it that I I would say that it it kind of comes down to this book is aiming in ways to raise the stakes of episode one um, because you have disagreements within the ranks of the handmaidens. You have them still struggling. This is not something that they have perfected. The uh, the decoy maneuver is not something they perfected like they have in Queen's Shadow. Uh, you, you see more of that development side of that and also, when you get to episode one, 
now, I, I mean, at least for me, I'm reading it much differently because this is their first big trial. Nothing like this is, has ever happened before where they've actually had to use the decoy maneuver for life or death situations, not just being able to go to a concert or because you like a girl or whatever it may be, right? So it raises the stakes in on that level. It raises the stakes by having Jar Jar's banishment be something that just happened recently because it's showing the simultaneously the courage and fear of him going back down uh, to Aragunga. It raises the stakes of the the moment of Padme reuniting uh, the Gungans and the Naboo because, like I said earlier, they had never really seen each other. They had re- never... A lot of them didn't... They didn't interact. Uh, and then even when you get to Tatooine, you have things like Padme realizing her privilege and... Um, you know, that goes to, Drew, what you were talking about with morals earlier made me think about that. Like, her morals are developing um, because she's having to face these unique situations. Um, and she's having to face these, I guess, these ideas that never really were something that she thought she would ever even have to confront, you know? Um, which we get some of it when in Phantom Menace when she goes to Tatooine and doesn't know that slavery still exists in the galaxy but here i feel like you get more of her struggling with okay so how do i what do i do about it you know um how do i come to terms with that so for me the peril i think if if you're looking at it on just a uh, star wars action adventure level is the peril of what are the handmaidens doing during uh, episode one and and raising the stakes there but i think the other aspect the more of the the deeper level of it is the peril of identity um, that we've been talking about and um, how we come to terms with that when we live in a world where our actions have such grand impacts. So my thought on the title too is, I mean, number one, Brendan, I agree with everything you just said. I'm going to have an... I'll call it an Angelica Schuyler moment where I want to look at where the apostrophe is. Oh, I is. can't wait. <laughs> all, all I could think of when I was going to say that is like, I feel, I feel like it's the part where she's like, the comma's in the middle of the sentence. Um, but, Did you change the meaning? Did you change the <laughs> but the, the title Queen's Peril, I kind of wish that Queen's was plural. And the apostrophe was at the end of it, because then we could say this isn't so much just about Padme and her struggle. This is about all six of these young women forming one person's identity and forming this one character that's ruling this planet and what they're all going through to develop that persona. So I don't. That's just, in my opinion, one kind of cool way that you could differentiate it. Unfortunately, the apostrophe is in the middle of the word. It is singular, <laughs> so so we can't really confirm or deny that that's the case. That's the point. But to me, Queen's Peril. Yeah, it's it's not just about everything that happens after being queen. It's about forming that person and having six people 
build into it because again ek johnston does this so well in every single one of her books is explore how a person is built through all of their relationships yeah i mean i would i would definitely agree with that because just thinking about like my classroom and how each classroom in a school has a little bit of a different identity, even though they, you know, you have kids that have been going to school together for years and years, they know each other, you know, as you get into a new classroom, and there's a different teacher, and as the teacher, you're getting different students, your own individual identities start to shape more of a communal identity. And so like, even between the two classes that I have, I act differently with them. Some of them, you know, I'm a little more goofy. Some you can be more sarcastic with. Some you need to push more. Some are more self-motivated. And me as the leader, I have to shape myself to their skills, but also they as students need to shape themselves to what I need out of them, right? And so I think that's kind of what you have going on here. So that that makes that makes sense to me that it's, you know, not only the individual identities that they're figuring figuring out, but also this communal identity uh, that they're figuring out. And so this this talk of identity got me thinking. Do you guys think? Um, or actually, I should say because I don't really care what you guys think. I really want. <laughs> I really want. I'm a teacher. It's so important for me to develop my my students and make sure that you guys, I don't care what you think. No, no, no. Pedestrians. Because I want this. I want want this to happen. I want a Luke and Leia searching for more information about Padme's story. Like, I want to see them learning about the Clone Wars and learning about Operation Cinder. And did they ever learn about the Neberis? Is that... Did they did they have to come to terms with the fact that they had these grandparents that were out there who are clearly great people? You know, like I I, I want. I mean, it, they technically also have cousins that wouldn't be that much older than them. Exactly. Like, come on, man. Oh, wait a minute. Well, hang on. Padme sisters. Ha- Padme has sister or family with children. Yes, it's in the episode two deleted scenes and then at the end of Revenge of the Sith in the funeral procession. Yep. That's interesting. (laughs) So mull that over. Uh, But you know what? Okay, so so we've talked though so much about kind of forming these identities, forming these relationships, and I know just from the brief offhand comments that we've made offline we kind of, at least Drew and I, felt this way. I do think that there was maybe a little curiosity between Padme and Sabe. Did you guys also read into that it that way? Am I totally off here? Was that intentional? What are your thoughts on that? And why is it important? And now let's listen as two straight white dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Try and understand. Yeah. And Please explain. visit the Last Jedi commentary oh, on Patreon. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna forever regret that commentary. Um, Guys, if you're not a Patreon member, the only way to understand what's going on is to join up the pa- Patreon because mm, Chef's is glorious. It's it's it well worth, worth a couple it. bucks. Yeah, if you want to really hear me embarrass myself for a solid like ten minutes that I was digging my own grave, uh, <laughs> I think. 
I think, you know, obviously, like Drew said, like, we are not, uh, so we can only understand from an outsider's perspective, but I, I liked having that in here. I liked also that they didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, I think that in certain instances, uh, Chuck Wendig's, uh, character, uh, in, in the Aftermath trilogy comes to mind is like, they are putting it in there. They're putting somebody who's gay or bi or trans or whatever it may be in the story and they're letting you know, you know, and it's their relationships are, you know, in the forefront or whatever, so that you know that there's a gay character in this book. Whereas what E.K. Johnston does here, I feel like is a lot more authentic, where Sabe and Harley naturally just fall into this relationship. And like, I honestly, I was reading it and I had to flip back pages to, to remember which of the siblings was Harley because I was like, am I reading this the way I think I'm reading this? And then, I had that same moment. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was like, okay, it's, it's cool that like it's just being put in there, right? But then also um, having it in there of somebody trying to understand exactly where along that spectrum they fall and, you know... Um, how can you love somebody and care deeply for somebody maybe with being in a relationship with them versus with not being in a relationship with them? And just the whole, honestly, just the fact that it brings up this conversation for me as somebody who, you know, obviously is represented on screen and everything. For me, it's something that I appreciated that it's, it's a conversation that is now it's there. Um, it's something that, was presented just as natural even like like okay here i go again Lindsay. ready even like talking about the girls periods like here we go <laughs> i i liked having that in there purely because i was like okay this is something that women have to deal with and if you're writing a book about five or six young women growing up and trying to figure out their identity this is something that they're going to have to face and when my future girls are growing up and they decide to read this book that it maybe helps them come to terms with something that might be difficult for them to come to terms with in a way that characters like Ahsoka or Leia have done for me. So just the fact that that conversation is something that is presented as natural um, and it's not... I like that E.K. Johnston didn't make any of it a big deal and in doing so, it becomes a big deal, if that makes sense. Mm, no, like it does like because it. it's it's her. I really like that. At least this is the way I took it. It wasn't like Padme was saying, "Stop the presses. I need to figure out how I feel about this. How I feel about her. What does this mean in the the grand scheme of things?" It was just a, to me a very natural. These feelings were there, but Padme knew it wasn't the number one priority right now. So how does she maintain a healthy relationship with this person while still prioritizing these 18,000 other things that had to be done first? And that's why it, in my opinion at least, that's why it works so well for all of the reasons you, Brandon, just kind of outlined. Drew, where do you come down on this? <laughs> uh, I, I, 
I don't know that I have anything terribly insightful. I do like the the difference how Sabe is so comfortable in her own skin. Like she is secure in who she is and, and what she wants out of life. And that compares and contrasts nicely to Padme, who doesn't know yet, who has uh, problems that she has yet to overcome, you know, both personally and professionally. And Sabe's like, no, we're just going to barrel through this and do the right thing. And, and I like that. And, and it kind of creeps up in these in the relationship aspect, too, where she falls into this rhythm with Harley at the concert that they sneak out to. Um, and, and how that's used later on, I think, is interesting. And it's I'm not sure about if how it's used is, is it used solely in order to put Padme in an awkward po- position later? Or is it a more natural result of the storytelling situations? And I think it's the late, the latter of those two. I think it's a more natural consequence. I agree. I don't think it's used as a prop. Anytime we use characteristics of a person as a prop or like their soul-defining characteristic, like that's who they are, they are this one particular thing, and that's all that they are, is kind of disingenuous and, and, and is cheap. Um, because people are, like you said, Brandon, earlier people are multifaceted we have these different aspects and we are not consumed nor directed by any one singular soul thing we are a result of a conglomeration of different things and you know our personal experiences and appreciations of the world around us are different from person to person and this book gives room for people with different points of view and i and i appreciated that i think it was fine I yeah. think poor Korsh Panaka gets the raw end of the deal <laughs> because there's no way that a dude who's been the head of security for several queens in a row thinks to put a blood sensor in the bedroom. Yeah, that was that was Panaka. Not good. No, uh, I he I will say that. as the as the the resident girl on this panel. That scene read so authentically. Like I could feel and relate really? to that. And yes, it really did. It wait, wait, really I, I, did. This may be. You can say no, I'm not talking about this aspect, but I'm sp- thinking specifically about how the head of security installs a blood sensor in a room where women are. I mean, that just sounds dumb for a person who's been guarding women for decades now. Yeah, but now, that's why his that wife. Sounds realistic. Uh, uh, both sides sound realistic because I think that they hung that they that Johnston really hung a lantern there by having his wife say to him like what were you thinking and he yeah. said something along the lines of you know they're on suppressants but because this one girl was so much younger and she didn't have a chance to do that yet that's why they those alarms kind of went off now what a big so dumb that dummy was he is. <laughs> he is but but i mean like from sachet's perspective that was handled so authentically um well and i there think there is the yeah go on go on I, well i was just going to add on that i think you know it it honestly makes sense because you know he doesn't he he doesn't have that experience so he's we see the world through our own lens, right? We tend to put our own glasses on and see the world through our understanding instead of stopping to think about the different experiences that somebody else is going through or will have to go through, right? So he sees, oh, you know, somebody's bleeding, they're hurt, they're in danger. The quicker I can get notified about that, the better. But without considering what you know a young girl is going to have to go through because he's not looking at it through the lens of a young woman he's looking Anyone at it through else, the lens yeah. of a security uh person as as somebody who is 
cautious and, and trying to prevent something bad from happening. And in, in turn, he makes something happen that he didn't mean to, you know, because he's looking at it through his own lens. That <laughs> sequence where he breaks down the door and charges in the room is equal parts like the most hilarious scene in the book, but also the most like, are you absolutely kidding me? This is unbelievable. It's like no, cringeworthy. Wave yeah. off, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I like good. Panaka before that moment, too. I, li- I like his character. I actually liked him more after that because you almost like feel bad for him because you're like, oh, you big dumb animal. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I have a hard time believing that's the mistake that he would have made. I mean, I, I understand what's happening in the story that was in the moment that they're building to there. And, and honestly, it goes to kind of what we talked about, the same character who she's going to go on later and, and undergo this a physical torture. Like that was probably like an emotional torturous sequence as well. Like, so her character is really built around suffering. It seems, which is <laughs> she's really put through not the great for her. Yeah. This is not a fun time for, for the 13 year old in the gang. So, you know, what's funny. We're now how far into this discussion and we've spent so much time talking about Sache, and she's like probably the second to last one who I thought we would spend a lot of time talking about. I love, I really wish I listened to the audiobooks because I'm going to butcher this name. I know it's not Robbie. Rabbi? Rabbi? What? I, I <laughs> what is that Robbie. one? <laughs> Rabbi? I love her. And I think it's so crucial to show that she's pretty much the leader of the group. Like, Padme might have the final say in things, and she might have the elected title, but Rave is 100% the leader of this group. I'd agree with that. I remember which one she is. (laughs) I think (laughs) she's the leader of the group, Drew, but she's she's the one who, like, she... (laughs) Who would you have said? I would have said Sabe is definitely the the leader, the alpha of the pack. I would but say she's also my favorite. So I would say Sabe Sabe is the alpha, but I would say Rabe is the leader. Like I think this book does a better job of of separating the handmaidens into their own identities than Queen Shadow did. Queen Shadow mm-hmm. was really focused on Sabe and Padme, which was its objective, and so it did that effectively. The other handmaidens were important with regards to understanding Sabe and Padme's relationship with each other. Whereas here you have uh, these, they're all individuals while also all, you know, uh, one person. And you have, you know, you have Padme who is the, she's the leader, she's the show person, she's up front, you know, she's the face of it. Uh, But the people behind her, you have Sabe who is, the alpha who's the muscle if you will you have rabe who's the one that's really leading everything but doesn't feel the need to be at the front you have sache the one who is uh you know quietly takes on the weight and the the toll and the suffering that the rest of the group so the rest of the group won't have to deal with it you have uh yane who is 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 there um <laughs> who is so- there <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to be able to get through all six of the characters like that because I was like I don't know what I would say at that moment either. Yeah, I don't. I don't really. I mean, again, like I guess I missed that part. One of them's a musician. Uh, I think that's Sache. That's uh, no, that's Sabe too. That's Sabe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which but, is the but one that's who's the thing, like, like I have no problem being second place. Like that's I'm Sabe. always the second. That's Sabe. Sabe. All right. Yeah. This is just. But me that's not why, being, like, Rabe. 
I really like Drabe, and the reason why I kind of see her as the leader is there were multiple times, either when they are talking about um, the plans for how they're going to first test out the decoy and is Padme as a page going to work. That was Rabe's plan. And when they're talking uh, about the okay. changes in uh, the different wardrobe and the different materials, Rabe wasn't the one executing it, but she had the final decision for what the dresses were going to be and what utilities they were going to use. And most of the time when even Padme herself had to make like the final call for something, everyone turns to Rabe. It's her final decision that's going to make or break any of these plans, any of these blueprints that they're creating. And the reason I think that's so powerful is because to me, it's not a weakness of Padme. I think if anything, it shows her strength that she can take a step back and say, if someone else is right, they're right. I don't need to argue. I don't need to have the last word just because I'm in this position of power. What's more important to me is that final result. Yeah. 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 I would, I would agree. I mean, I mean, it's like the Jedi council, you know, they, they all have their say, they all, uh, try to work together and, and bring different things to it. But at the end of the day, Yoda's the one that's going to make the call. Right. Um, it's kind of similar in that way where, you know, Rabe is the one who, at the end, we're going to trust her wisdom um, and her judgment because Padme is a character, like we've brought up multiple, multiple times, that is trying to figure out exactly who she is and, and having to figure it out in a very tumultuous time. Um, one final thing I wanted to talk about was the Shmi Padme moment uh, because... Mm. This book, like I said, it does raise the stakes for episode one for me. Um, not not a lot, but it does add a little more context to it, which I I really appreciate because Phantom Menace is one of my favorites. But I really emotionally felt a little hollow with the Shmi Padme moment. Um, I, I wanted a little bit more of their interaction with each other and their... Uh, particularly Padme kind of understanding Shmi and where she's coming from. And at the same time, I like what we get because they don't need to say anything. They don't need to talk. It's just about them being together and, and by being together, understanding each other. And I think anything you could have said would have been overly self-referential. Um, and instead, what they're, what E.K. Johnston is trying to do here is just show that these two women are are connected, uh, that that in a way they understand each other in a way that words couldn't really uh, define. And being the you know, having the role that they do in Anakin's life and, and thus in the, the larger galaxy, I kind of like that you didn't try to force a conversation into the moment and you just let them be. You know, yeah. um, so, so where do you guys come down on that? I had to play devil's advocate to myself on this one. It, you know, it was very much <laughs> playing chess against myself because my initial reaction was, well, what was that? Like that right. felt forced at first. I wasn't that big of a fan of it. I didn't really see why we needed it. And to me, I mean, I love Shmay. I, re I really do love Shmay. I think she is a great character. She's so important. 
And that's why, to me, if we are going to spend a couple of pages with her, I want her to do something that really influences Padme. And it really influences her character and anyone who she interacts with, right? The way I talked myself out of that, though, was realizing that Padme has kind of a a unique reaction in episode two because when Anakin's like my mother's in danger we need to go back Padme isn't like oh my god Shmi I love her of course we have to go save her whereas I think if they had a more drawn out conversation here if they had this really impactful interaction here it would have made Padme's quiet calm reaction to things in episode two seem off so that's why i i think that no talking between them scene in the long run works there's a little bit more of that humility that you get between both characters right like shmi is a very humble character padme is a very humble character and so they kind of understand each other on that level um and yeah i i hadn't thought about that scene in episode two drew where do you come down on uh, what they did with Shmi and Padme here? Uh, I think it's... I, I read it more as this is kind of what um, keeps in Padme's mind the issue of slavery that is so prominent in Queen's Shadow. Mm. You know, she she sends Sabe off on the mission to basically go start freeing as many slaves as you can, and you might as well start with Tatooine. And I feel like that's really all that this sequence did for me, was kind of set that in motion. Uh, I... I kind of would have expected the two of them to talk to each other. You know, I, I don't really... They, they have a very short and clipped conversation, and maybe that's attributable, attributable to, you know, Shmi doesn't get as much interaction as a slave. She's there to work. Um, but Padme has now grown accustomed to bringing people, literally bringing people into her circle and making them a part of her family. And she doesn't do that here. Uh, the book makes it pretty clear that Padme is extremely uncomfortable uh, in the house. She doesn't know how to deal with the issue of slavery. She doesn't know how to treat Shmi like a person. Uh, but it, it, it basically boils down to the text telling us that rather than us, us seeing the results of that. I would have liked to have seen an interaction between those two characters where she screws up, where Padme kind of bumbles things, and, you know, maybe makes a reference to something, and Shmi's like, I couldn't possibly understand or participate in that. I'm a slave. Like, something that kind of drives the point home. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a little bit tough uh, to kind of put together what would have been better because I don't think that's fair. But just based on what we got, I don't really see it in, in influencing a lot more than just kind of Padme's, uh, Padme's affection for curing the issue of slavery and tattooing that we see later on. Um, so I'm on kind of the devil's advocate. Uh, I'm on the devil side of the devil advocate argument. <laughs> well, I mean... Not always my favorite place to be, but what are you going to (laughs) do? You know, uh, I I see this as like, you know, an opportunity where we never thought we would really get to see Shmi and Padme interact with each other. And here's an opportunity to do it. So we're going to take advantage of that opportunity where, you know, it's good. It could have been better, uh, but we got what we got and they had to play it safe. They don't really do much. Yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. They kind of play it safe. 
right? Like, yeah, they, it's, it's again, it's a straddling the line. It's like either give us all of it or give us none of it. Like, I, I don't really see this is a nugget, and I don't really think that really satisfies what it, it sets out to establish. Because, like, when you see that they're all in the house, like, we know that's a sequence that happens from the movie. They talk a little bit on screen, and we're given the opportunity. Like, you know, we get a lot of information of, of, of kind of the arrangement that's going on in the house. You know, Qui-Gon and Jar Jar. You know, Jar Jar is sleeping on the kitchen floor. Just a minute. What in the world is happening with that character? And Qui-Gon is sleeping in the door, but there's a great sentence where... Um, He's sleeping in the doorway uh, as though he would protect them from anything that tried to come in. That's it. That's all you get on, on the description. And that's a good use of kind of that minimalistic approach to say you get one line and you know everything you need to know from that piece of information. But the conversation between Shmi and Padme is very like superficial and, and ends with, you know, you can stay up with me if you want. And Padme says, I'd like that. And then literally the next line says... They didn't talk very much after that, period. Okay, wh- why not? Like, <laughs> they couldn't think of anything to say. Padme could have been like, what's pod racing? You know, or, or anything. Or why is a nine-year-old boy okay with pod racing? Or why is the mother of a nine-year-old boy okay with her pod? You know, that kind of like, I can see a conversation that could have developed out of that. Again, not putting myself in, in the author's shoes because that's not fair at all. But I, I, I think that what this scene, therefore... It, what what it, the reason it's there is in order to inform what happens in Queen's Shadow. That's really what I get out of it the most. That's fair. And speaking of Queen's Shadow, this book and speaking of the relationships between characters, this book opens and closes very similar to how Queen's Shadow does, uh, where you have kind of reflecting um, moments of, in the beginning of Queen's Shadow, spoilers for Queen's Shadow, obviously, uh, you get... Padme floating, but it's uh, on the lake, but it's written very much as if it's the scene in episode three, and then it closes uh, with her funeral scene in episode three. And here you start with a girl in a white dress, which automatically makes you think of Leia. Uh, They talk about her hair being done, makes you think of Leia, all these things that make you think of Leia. And then, of course, it's Padme. Uh, And then at the end, you get the the scene with Leia um, in the throne room. And so... I I mean, you guys know me. The more Leia content we get, I'm going to be here for it. I really liked that. I thought um, the the idea of setting it up like that and setting up, you know, that not just our Padme and Leia mother and daughter, but they're very similar to each other. Um, I think we t- can kind of take that for granted sometimes because, you know, they're both in politics and they both, you know, have hairstyles and, you know, whatever. Um but I like that it set it up on a more emotional level of these are two young women who are having to be at the lead of something, who are, are going to be at the forefront of something that we wouldn't really expect a 13- and 18-year-old uh, to be able to handle. But because of their youth and because of the the kind of purity that comes with that, they are able to be the leaders that the galaxy uh, needs at those times. So... Drew, your thoughts on that parallel open and close, and did it work? Oof. Did it work? Uh, I guess not. I don't particularly care for her categorization of Leia as being completely alone. Um, The two sections are... The first paragraph on each section is identical. And 
it includes now she was alone and no one could help her. Whatever happened next, however it was recorded and remembered, she was entirely on her own. It's just not true about Leia, though. Like, she may have led the rebellion. Like, she may have been the voice and the face thereof. But the whole point of A New Hope is to show that she's not alone, that she has brought these people in. We know that, but she doesn't at this point. Yeah, I, that's she what does. I would say. It's the throne room scene on Yavin 4. I mm-hmm. think, if anywhere, that's where she should know that she's not alone. I think she's starting to figure out that she's not alone, but it's also been one day since her entire planet was blown up, her parents along with it. Listen, I'll give that as much credit as the I don't really know if that's rebound time. (laughs) (laughs) We've no time for our sorrows, Commander. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Obi-Wan just died and I'm going to go cry about it, but let me be comforted by the girl whose planet exploded. I, it's, I would it's, argue, though, that I it's not... I, I disagree. It, it worked for me. I would argue that Leia doesn't truly know she's not on her own until Empire Strikes Back. Um, what? Really? Defend that. I'm going to agree. I'm going to agree, <laughs> because yeah. Because... Then I'll ask it in the form of a question. In what sequence do you think that she learns that she's not alone? I don't think it's a certain sequence. I think it's just a an evolution that happens where she you know han is is gonna leave and she is is keeping up this front uh with him not just to hide her feelings but to kind of hide the hurt that may come uh from from that i guess abandonment for lack of a better term um and she doesn't really understand the relationship with luke yet uh, because obviously they don't know uh-huh, that they're clearly. connected. Um, yeah, right. Um, and I, I think it's, <laughs> I think she's definitely friends with them and really good friends. But I don't think that in, until the events of Empire, they've truly become a family because it's separating them apart and them being able to find each other again, which we get in the beginning of Return of the Jedi, but kind of at the end of Empire Strikes Back that really um, allows that to happen. I think it's Han's willingness to sacrifice himself for her that not only allows her to admit that she loves him, but to admit that she's vulnerable, admit that she uh, does care for these people and that that's going to affect the way that she fights the war. I don't think it's until Luke comes back for um, her to to try to protect them, to try to save them, which he does a terrible job of. But it's not until she sees that that she really understands that these people are willing to sacrifice themselves for her, that she is not alone. It's very similar to what we get with Ray. I think, you know, Ray, we have that moment where Finn comes back for her. And even though he doesn't save her, she's like, you came back for me. Um, and that's really where they become inseparable. They become, you know, one almost. And I think that's what you get through the the adventure of or the journey of Empire Strikes Back. No, I, I agree, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the prologue-epilogue mirror is so effective, just as it was in Queen Shadow, because it's also emotional to the point where it's like, am I really ready to be a Star Wars fan? This seems like a lot of heart. This is, this is a lot of emotion. <laughs> 
it is tragedy. So that's where we're gonna we're gonna let it just simmer there, let you think about those things, and uh, let you share your thoughts with us on Queen's Peril. Um, you can come over on our Facebook group, Clashing Sabers, uh, Star Wars Clashing Sabers, Twitter at Clashing Sabers, Patreon. We have a Patreon now if you guys want to support us in that way, and you get some awesome uh, commentaries that uh, we did over the movies and more stuff to come soon. Um, Patreon.com slash Clashing Sabers. Before we wrap the the show, though, before we bring it to an absolute close, let's go ahead and do what we like to do here on the show and give it a out of five rating. And this time we will do out of five headdresses. So, Lindsay, one to five, how many headdresses do you give this book? I will give this one a four, actually. I I really enjoyed this. Sounds good to me. All right, Drew. I'm going to go three. This is good, but not awesome. All right. And I am going to say four headdresses. I agree with Lindsay. I really enjoy it. I think. How did it come to this? I think you have uh, tiers of authors when it comes to Star Wars. You have the A tier, which are the Claudia Grays and the Delilah Dawson's, um, the Charles Sewell's. E.K. Johnston is is eking her way up there, and I'm excited to see uh, what she has coming next, if maybe we get something a little closer to Revenge of the Sith. We'll see. Lindsay, before you have to to run here, let everybody know where they can find you. Nope, she's gone. Okay, (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and close out. Uh, so again, sorry, no, I'm here. I, oh, yeah. You guys can find me on our Facebook. Uh, you guys can find me on our Facebook page, um, and also on Twitter over at the Lady of Lore, and like Brandon said, over on Patreon now. All right, and Drew, tell them about you and your stuff. Oh my, um, the Facebook Facebook group is probably the best place. I'm I'm not enjoying the Twitterverse at the moment, so I'm I'm quiet and not really participating over there anymore. But the Facebook yeah. group is good. Um, you can find us there, and we always look forward to your uh, comments and additions. Yeah, and uh, we look forward to hearing uh, from you on what you think about Queen's Peril, its relationship to Queen's Shadow, and its conversations uh, that it brings up about the other movies and content. So until next time, keep creating, keep reading, keep writing, but whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All right, by this point, you know how this goes. Their stuff, their stuff, our stuff, our stuff. Not associated with Lucasfilm. Kathleen Kennedy, give me a call. Dave Filoni, I'm there if you need me. Our thoughts? They're our thoughts. They don't reflect Lucasfilm or anybody else associated with this stuff. So if you don't like it, we're sorry. If you do like it, great. Let us know either way on iTunes, on whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on. Rate us, review us, share us, tell your friends about us, and it, whatever you do, just don't burn the sacred text. Burn the sacred text.